Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of IGN Unfiltered, our monthly interview series where I have the pleasure of sitting down with some of the best, brightest, most fascinating minds in the games industry. Today, my guest is Scott Miller. He's the co-founder of 3D Realms and uh, has worked out a ton of legendary games over the years. Scott, thanks for coming by. Glad to be here. So I always like to start at the beginning. I'm always curious where people come from, and I was uh, really interested to read your bio because your, your father was a NASA engineer who worked on the uh, Apollo and Gemini launches. Do you have any interesting stories that he told you uh, from like the sort of behind the scenes stuff of that? God, I, I wish I did. I mean, he said he knew all the astronauts because, you know, growing up, I was fascinated by all this stuff. Yeah. You know, this was when the original Star Trek was coming out and uh, you know, I'm kind of dating myself here, but I was totally into all this stuff. Um, and um, my father, he, he's let me know that like some of the stuff he designed is still on the moon. Wow, um, and um, like he said that you know he he would he, they weren't supposed to do this, but like he would take like a magic marker and he put like his little initials sure. like the back a little Easter inside. egg, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. There's Easter eggs up there, uh, and um, so yeah, that's I mean I mean he's got he's got some good stories about NASA. Uh, he you know he loved it there, um, and when the Apollo uh, uh, you know missions they finally ended in the early seventies. Um, he ended up taking a job and going to the, the sort of like the Area 51 of Australia. So we ended up huh. moving to Australia there, and I I went all my high school years there. And he worked in this super secret sort of joint American uh, Australian uh, base that you That's know cool. to this day I don't think there's any photographs that exist of this place. It's that that secret. Wow. Um, and he worked there until he retired. Wow, that's awesome. So, um, from what I read about you, you, you seem like you got the bug to make games, video games, pretty early. So, I would presume that given his line of work, uh, your father was probably pretty encouraging with the, with your your uh, initiative there. You know, um, I guess he was. Uh, I mean, he helped me buy my first computer back, uh, which I bought a Commodore PET, but. Um, the thing is, I, I got into a lot of trouble because I still lived in Australia, and our in our high school, we got a very early PC. It was called a Wing twenty two hundred. It was like the first integrated PC ever. It had the screen huh. built in, the little floppy drive. Yeah. Um, and anyway, so I ended up taking an elective to do this class, um, and it was the only class in all of school, elementary and high school, where I ended up getting a D. I did, I, I did not understand what computers were about, and uh, so. It just eluded me. It was like it's just a big calculator. I didn't understand what the appeal was. Yeah. And it, part of this was the teacher. It was his first time ever to teach this thing. He didn't really know what was going on either. <clears throat> so, anyway, after that class, um, you know, the, the, during you know later in the school year, I remember my friend saying, "Hey, Scott, we're going to the computer uh, after school. You know, we're going to fool around." And I'm, and I'm like, "Why?" <laughs> and they were like, "Well, we're we're." Playing games and, and what? And so I went there, and what they would do is they were, there was like magazines back in the day, like Byte and Computer Creative Computing, and they would type in these games. Right, and you could put them in and put, put them in the computer using the basic language. Yeah, and suddenly you were playing this game, and that's when the big light went off, and I go, oh, "This is amazing." And so what happened was, 
I really got into it, and I'm like 15 at the time, <clears throat> to the point to where, uh, you know, you know, we'd be, we'd be kicked out at like 5 o'clock, so we'd have like two hours after school between right. 3 and 5. I would unlatch the window. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and sneak into school <laughs> after dark, and I'd be up there with no lights on, just the green glowing screen, and I'm typing in programs. And I, was, I got away with this for months, and then one day, I got called into the principal's office, and there's that computer teacher, and he's and he's got he found my disc, and, and somehow they knew I was there, and, and and you know the principal's looking at me across the desk, and he's like, "This is pretty serious, Scott," and he says, "You know, what do you think we should do?" And I'm like, "You know, I'm thinking I'm going to get suspended and stuff." He says, Encourage you more, maybe. <laughs> anyway, and, and and the principal said, "You know, the teacher has looked at your through your stuff, and it's actually really impressive. So I'm going to make a deal with you," and he slid across a key. To the computer room, he nice. says, you have all the access you want, but whenever the teacher needs help, you have to help him. That's how, that's awesome. It was that's a, great. Yeah. So That they, they thought yeah. well enough to encourage you rather than. Yeah. And it's not, I never damaged the computer, no. so they recognized that, and so they gave me access, and, and yeah. So did, you mentioned the D, that you're your only one ever, but did you, did it, after the light went on, did it turn into an A after that? Well, I, I never, I never took the class again. Oh, but, okay, all right. But uh, yeah, I mean, it would have. It fi- like... Finally, I, I realized computers have a purpose. Yeah. to make games. <laughs> so, uh, fast forwarding to to as you start to be, do this professionally and, and devote your your career to it, you basically, it's fair to say, I think you basically invented shareware. Is but that, that, that's going a step too far. Okay. I mean, Shareware existed. There was a lot of utility programs out there. And there were a couple of games that had been released, but they were not making money. In fact, some of the experts at the time, like John Dvorak, had written like this article. I've still got it in my storage somewhere where he said, you know, games cannot make money in Shareware. And he had all these reasons why. <laughs> and, but he was kind of right. Uh, because you know the thing is, is people will not pay for something they've already got in their hands. Right, and to for I guess I should have to remember that um, our audience is much younger than than either one of us, and so shareware is is effectively uh, even you get even more of a game than a, than a what we know today as a playable demo. You're you're giving away like a quarter of the game, right? Well, that's that's sort of the innovation that that uh, I came up with. Uh, I mean, a lot of a lot of programs like McAfee and I mean, a lot of these guys were making their money in shareware in the day. That's where they got their start. Um, and I figured out that the, that for games though, people just weren't willing to pay. Um, and so what I did is is the thing I came up with is I had this game called Cross, and I divided it up into three episodes, and I just released the first one into shareware. This was back in 1987. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, well, in that game, I had like a screen that said, if you like this game and you want more, send me $15. I'll send you the other two episodes. Right. And suddenly the checks started coming. Wow. And, you know, I was working a day job. And after a year, uh, you know, my, my income from the shareware stuff was dwarving wow. my day job. And I was like, okay, I, I just got to quit this job. And, and I started making games on my own, and, you know, and, and it, I reached a point where I realized, you know, I've got a great marketing idea here. I'm not that great at making games on my own. You know, I, I can program okay, but I'm not that great. Um, so why not find other authors who are out there who can 
who could make games and, and I'll just basically publish their games using my marketing strategies and help mm -hmm. them design the games and everything. And, and so this is how I came across some early developers like Todd Repogel, who ended up being the guy who helped me make Duke Nukem. He was the lead coder on the first three Duke Nukem games, including Duke 3D. Uh, this is how I came across um, John Romero. He had a game called sure. Dangerous Dave. I contacted him and ended up helping them form id Software at the time. And, and so basically it was my efforts to try and really take advantage of this marketing idea and bring in a lot of other developers. I mean, that's that, to me, that strikes me as pretty, um, I guess, mature, for lack of a better word, that you would sort of set aside your own ego and, and, and realize, hey, maybe I'm not the best game developer. I should pivot and, and double down on, on this marketing idea. Well, it was more than that. Not only was I not the best game developer, but this marketing idea could be used for way more games. Even if I was a great developer, yeah. I could, you know, there's a chance here to really go big with this and have a lot of developers making games and just kind of like own the market. Right. And for a lot of the 90s, you know, there was this top 10 sharer list that was released by a company called Happy Puppy. <laughs> um, and they were the de facto list. And there was times where we had, you know, eight of the top 10 games on that list. <laughs> you know, we were all over the place there. So uh, when, as you're sort of popularizing the idea of shareware with games, did you, get, did you get a lot of pushback from within the games industry from other developers, or, or was everybody pretty much seeing those top ten lists and going, oh, this is clearly something we should be partnering up with Scott and, and Apogee on? Uh, a, lot of, a lot of people started to approach us, but early on we did get pushback, and it was probably the greatest pushback uh, I got from any company was id Software. <laughs> um, when, I, when I approached them and told them about the idea, they were completely in disbelief that you could make money. And I was like, look at my cross games. They're making, you know, uh, you know they were making like $150,000 a year off this wow. crappy little, you know, ASCII-based, you know, dungeon crawl game that was kind of based on Rogue and just, just wasn't that good. But, you know, but the marketing idea was such that, you know, it was bringing in the money. And... Um, so they said, well, tell you what, we'll give it a shot, but you, you need to pay us for development. And I said, well, like, what, what do you need? They said, $4,000. And I didn't even blink. I was like, here's the check. <laughs> here's the check. And they came back to me, and they had this little one-paragraph thing that was Commander Keen. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, so they were, you know, it was like a four-month project, and they would send me little demos. And I remember... Um, Every time I got a demo, I was so impressed with them, I would send them an extra check, like $100, and I would write on, in a little memo, I'd say, pizza bonus. <laughs> That's great. And to this day, if you ask Tom about it, he still remembers Tom his, Hall, he, yeah. Yeah, Tom Hall. You know, he's one of the founders of it. Uh, they were so amazed that I was sending them money that I didn't even need to. But I was just, <laughs> I want to keep these guys happy. You know, they're doing good work, you know. Um, and so, yeah, just, <clears throat> so, but it, and when, when the game finally came out, and suddenly it, they were making you know, we were making, I think, $20,000 a month off this little Commander wow. King game, which, you know, for us, you know, guys who... 20-something guys. Yeah, right? you, know, you know, this was big money. They immediately realized, okay, this is something, and they, that's when they left SoftDisk and became very serious about creating its software. They actually moved to from, Dallas. Yeah, from Madison. You know, so we could be working together on, on future games. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, I mean, would, is it fair to say, I mean, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but... Is do you think Doom episode uh, episode one Knee Deep in the Dead is that the most ubiquitous, successful, popular shareware ever, or, or is there another one that comes to mind? 
That's probably number yeah. one. I mean, I feel like that was that was just monumental back in you know yeah. the early nineties. Yeah, I mean, you know, Wolfenstein was was massive. Yeah, and then Doom blew it away. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> when you you founded Apogee in eighty seven, you mentioned uh, eighty seven. So and you kind of had glossed over a little bit. It's like, oh, you know, you you realized, hey, I can quit my day job. What what was the day job? What was what was your sort of original career aspiration? I mean, wh- was it game development? I mean, I, I was I was working for a computer science degree, but I was also writing. I was actually. Um, um, I was actually writing a, a weekly column in the, in the uh, early to mid-80s about computer games for yeah. the Dallas Morning News. Um, I was writing for different magazines at the time, um, like Compute. Uh, that was a big magazine back then. Um, and I, I knew I wanted to be in computers somehow, uh, and I figured that you know, eventually I'd get my computer science degree. Uh, it, it, that was like, a, that was like a, a long road to get that degree which I never finished, I dropped out the semester I was going to end up you know, graduating because I, I felt like I needed to give this company you know, a real shot. Yeah. You know, and all my friends thought I was crazy. And then like, well, your parents, was your dad not thrilled about that? Or how was, how, how was he with that? You know, he's, he's actually been pretty supportive. Yeah, good. So, you know, I, I congratulate him on that because, you know, I guess the thinking is I'm still young, I can, I can make mistakes and recover. But it was my friends who gave me the most grief. <laughs> Uh, and then, like a year later, they're all working for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that works out. Yeah, and um, yeah, we're all friends to this day. And yeah. well, uh, George Broussard is a person who you've known a long time. Seemingly played a, a very, very important role in your life with uh, with you know, Apogee, which became 3D Realms. Do I have it right that that the two of you became friends in the in the computer lab in college? Is that where you guys ended up? Well, um, when I moved back from Australia. I graduated in Australia, but I had to come back here, and because you know it's summer there and winter here and that kind of stuff, I actually came back here and did uh, and, and graduated here also. So I went to school my senior, my last half of the senior year to get an American graduation, yeah, which was important to go to college here. And that's when I met George is in the computer lab, and um, the computer lab had um, an Apple II machine, and you know so we would we would end up uh, going there, and I had previously been working on that computer that Wink 2200, you know, and here's this Apple II, which is a step ahead. It's got color yeah. graphics. So I was there. Uh, he was a regular there. And we would, we would spend a lot of, you know, hours after school, you know, the sure. typical nerds, you know, uh, playing around on, on this computer and getting to know each other and became friends. And to the point, you ended up, you wrote a book together, which right. you had. Yes, you yes, brought it. Yes, I brought a book uh, because we were big into the arcade games. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that in a second too. And uh, so we, you know, we were we were these guys who in Dallas, you know, we were winning winning all these tournaments and, you know, he was expert at certain games like Pac-Man and I was into games like like Missile Command and stuff and so we decided, you know, let's I don't know if you can see this here. Let's let's write a book. And there's a a crazy picture of us on the back there, <laughs> uh, wild hair going and stuff. But anyway, so yeah, we did that and um yeah. What, so, uh, work. At, how was it fun working at the arcade? Like, is it barely a job, or or? <laughs> it was barely a job at all. And I, if yeah. I have your bio right, I think you, you said it was it was, that was better than a college education. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, in terms of learning games, I mean, you know, we're getting a new game every every couple of weeks. Yeah. And you know, these were these were being done by the cutting edge designers. 
at the time, you know, uh, the top designers in that age were working on these arcade machines. Oh yeah, machines. that was where all the, the advanced horsepower was. Right, so, um, you know, there was a lot to learn from the, the techniques being used in these games. And um, so, you know, I didn't know at the time, but just, you know, all the hours I'd play with these games. And like we, you know, when the store would close, when the arcade that we worked at would close at 10 or whatever, we would stay there for hours and just put it on free play and just, <laughs> you know. <laughs> best. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, all this playtime was really an important education because um, I, I tend to pay attention, you know, as a coder also, I was paying attention to all the little tricks and stuff being used on these. Yeah, you're mentally deconstructing everything you're looking reverse at. Reverse engineering stuff and thinking, oh, I get this now, you know, like, like to this day I still use like Centipede as an example where you've got very simple characters that on their own are not difficult, but in combination, you know, suddenly get a spider bouncing and the thing dropping and, you know, suddenly, you know, it becomes a complex system and it's right. very difficult to manage just from simple rules. It's awesome. Um, so I want to name some games that you've worked on because uh, a- Apogee was was your, your label. Uh, it became 3D Realms once Duke 3D hit, which we'll get to, but um, Wolfenstein 3D, which is behind me, we have the the, <laughs> the le- a legendary opponent here on the screen behind me, um, just yeah. Whether you have an anecdote or some just fun memory, we'll, we'll just like I said, we'll play. We'll start with start with Wolf 3D. Well, I mean, just just real quickly, I actually did the voice. This is my first voice work ever in a game. Uh, when when uh, you kill uh, Hitler in this game, uh, I yelled out Octung or something. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, when this game was being developed, um, it was originally going to be just a 16-color graphics EGA game. Um, and during development, um, we decided that let's also do a VGA game, you know, because VGA is starting to catch on. Yeah. Let's, you know, maybe there's a market there. And so... And for the kids that don't remember, that's VGA is, like, way more colors. It's 256 color. Yeah. So it's a big jump. It's, yeah. You know, from 16 to 256. And um, so it allows you to do, like, you can see, like, that cyan color has the, the gradient shading there. You know, in EJ, you can't get any of that. So uh, its software didn't have the manpower to handle uh, uh, doing more VG art. So I brought in some people that I've been working with on, on, um, on, on some of these other games to help work out with art, like a guy named Jim Norwood, um, who went on to develop his own game for us called Biohazard. Uh, and then he also was a, uh, he did Shadow Warrior 2 with us. Oh. But anyway, so I brought in some other people and, and we ended up doing really good stuff on the VGA side. And it got to the point where very close to relief is, re- release is like, you know, let's just drop the EGA thing completely. And so when Wolfstein came out, it was just VGA. So it was it was very cutting edge at the time. Very cutting edge. And we, and we kind of weighed the idea, well, we're, we're probably cutting our market by a lot. But the wow factor is going to be way higher if people don't see the EGA version. Right. Did uh, did you guys have any expectation that, that Wolfenstein 3D would become as as big as it did? Absolutely. You knew, huh? We 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 really felt it. In fact, to the point that um, this was going to follow the original Sherrod model that we had been using up up to that time, which was just let's have three episodes. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and Tom Hall and John Romero were getting so good at making episodes that very close to like like within a month of release, I remember approaching them and saying, you know. This is going to be big. What if we have another upgrade, another upsell option to where people can get three more episodes? So we were going to sell the first three episodes for, I think, $35. Mm-hmm. But what if there's three more episodes, we'll charge 50 And the, the guy said, yeah, it won't take us that much longer to do three more. <laughs> so we did that, and I think 90, 90% of our sales 
were all six wow. episodes for the 50 bucks. Well, that literally paid off then. Totally paid off. All right, uh, let's name another game that you worked on. Uh, this one, I remember this one well, Rise of the Triad. Well, that was originally going to be the sequel to, well, there was already a sequel that, that id Software did. It was gonna, it, the retail sequel, which was called Spear of Destiny. That was the That's sequel right. to Wolfstein. And that yeah. was released through FormGen, a company that both id Software and us, we worked with together on. Um, and then they were starting to work on Doom. And I was like, well, you know, there's probably still a lot more pie to be eaten with the Wolfstein <laughs> franchise. <laughs> um, and uh, one, of the, one of the things that we actually did was I went out uh, with some other people at Apache and we, we reviewed, like, I think 50 or more levels designed by people in the community. This is really what taught us that there was this mod community willing yeah. to make its own levels. And um, it really opened up both our eyes and id Software's eyes, and that's why id Software's Doom really had built-in mod support and everything. But anyway, what we did was we gathered up like the best 50 levels out there. I cut all these guys a percentage deal, and we released that as like an expansion pack. Wow. And it sold really well. I mean, that, that on its own, I think, made a, a million or two million dollars. So I, I felt like there was still more to be had while these guys are working on Doom. So I approached them with the idea of let's do another game. And, um, and Tom Hall had, I think, left id by that time. And Tom Hall could be in charge of this since he was intimately involved with Wolfstein the whole time. Mm-hmm. So we hired Tom Hall. And the game was going to be called Wolfenstein, The Rise of the Triad. And it was going to be this new continuation to where, you know, Hitler was just a puppet all along. But there was this triad of, you know, sort of occult background leaders who were involved with all this thing. And its software was like, boom, we're in on this. And we had an agreement. It was going along. About eight months into it, um, they decided to cancel the agreement. And they had rights to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think they felt like our game was going to maybe bump heads with Doom a little too much, and they didn't want that. And so, so that's why if you look at if you look at Rise of the Tribe, the one we came out with, there's a lot of Wolfenstein elements in there because we had to basically use all those assets we had already made. <laughs> I never realized that. This, yeah. this, 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 this show is it's for me. If it's <laughs> if no one else is watching, it's for me. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, okay, how about? Terminal Velocity is another game I have fond memories of as well. Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure what to say about that game. Um, you know, we, we worked with that team because uh, Mark Randall had previously worked with uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator, and he looked like, and he was, uh, you know, one of these hotshot, you know, amazing engineers, you know, in the same sort of class as John Carmack and Tim Sweeney. Yeah. Um, and so we thought, yeah, it's a no-brainer to work with this guy and we'll figure out some sort of game. And they had this idea for this flight game and everything, which is right up Mark's uh, alley. And uh, honestly, in my opinion, though, the game never really found the proper fun mm. factor. Um, but we rolled the dice with them because of the potential we thought was extremely high. And uh, it, it turned out to be a fun little action game, but uh, it, you know, if I were to grade it, you know, realistically, I'd give it maybe a 6, 7 best. So, you know, that game there, you know, it, it wasn't one of our big hits. Well, one that was, and you actually brought it, which I love you for, uh, Max Payne, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, it's, you guys were, well, I mean, if you didn't discover Remedy outright, you definitely helped, helped them break big. I mean, you, you, their first game that, that uh, even is, is obscure, like even, I'm an old, old school 90s PC gamer. I never played their first game, Death Rally, but Max Payne is what put them on the map. And you you got the original okay, well, box yeah, here. Yeah. I'll, I'll bring up the original yeah. box here. And 
just sit it here. I love that you have this. And uh, back then we, we took a lot of care when we designed our boxes and... Um, I kept all my old boxes because they're just, they were so great. Yeah. I, I, I miss the days when we had cool boxes like this. So yeah. The, um, yeah, they approached us. They were from the demo scene. Uh, a couple of them were from um, a famous uh, group called uh, Future Crew, and you know, famous for releasing these amazing demos back in the day. Like, um, can't remember the name. Anyway, uh, so they approached us, and they had a, a demo of a game called High Speed, which was this racing game, a top-down, had some 3D effects to it. Yeah. And uh, I, I saw the potential there, and we made a deal, and we ended up working with them. We changed the name to. Uh, to death rally yes. and uh, get the game out like in seven or eight months, and it did really well. And um, we just really enjoyed working with them. Uh, they really enjoyed working with us. So they came to us with three concepts. One of them was a concept that was um, a racing 3D game. I told them I hate it. Uh, another one was a concept that um, was like a space sort of RTS game, uh, kind of a home world type of concept. Okay. And I thought, probably has some potential. And, th and the third one was this top-down game that was a g like, like a game called Loaded back in the day. I think Interplay released a game called Loaded, which is kind of a top-down game where you see like a detective walking through this environment, you know, trying to solve clues. And I said, not really a fan, but I see, I see a way we can make this way better. Yeah. And so um, I, I remember sitting down with them. I said, you know what? Let's let's learn what we did. Let, you know, we've learned some really cool things from doing Duke Nukem, you know, character-based things. So let's make this a character-based franchise. We'll come up with a really cool name, and let's do full 3D, and let's come up with some really cool innovations for the game. And one of them was let's do photorealistic art. Let's do a graphic novel type presentation. You know, we don't we're, our team's not big enough to do cut screens, so let's let's fake it with graphic novel yeah. stuff. And um, let's just really give this character a great personality. And I said, and I remember, I still remember this, to this day in the meeting, uh, just kind of sitting around casually, I said, if we do our jobs right, this is going to be a game that's going to be around for decades. It's probably going to be a movie. You know, the movie studio's going to want to come to us. Uh, and it's just going to be a, a character that people love. And uh, so they totally bought into it. I actually sent them a bunch of books um, to read that really helped them out uh, with, with design and stuff and just marketing aspects and stuff. And um, this was the project that really sort of engulfed my time while my partner, George, was working on uh, finishing up Duke Nukem 3D and, and, and working on Duke Nukem Forever after yeah. that. Um, and I, you know, I loved working with Remedy. And, you know, we made that game and we, we made the sequel. I bought that box, box here. Oh, so good. Uh, and that, that is a shrink-wrapped copy, I'd like to point out. Yep. That is unopened right there. It's so impressive. Um, and uh, while we were making this one, uh, we ended up selling the whole franchise to, to Take Rockstar. Two. Yeah, Rockstar. Take two. And um, so that was the last one I worked on. But um, yeah, these are, the, these are actually the two games, my two favorite games that I ever worked on. Really? Yeah. I mean, I love both of these games. It's funny, we, you and I were talking uh, before, before we sat down to film. I, uh, I remember vividly Max Payne coming out and... The, the part of the community reaction. People, you know, people love the game, but it was, what do you mean it's only six hours long? And now we've come sort of full circle where a six-hour high-production high action game is totally normal. Right, and, and that really worried us when we realized it was only going to be six hours long. But, you know, here's, here's a game that was so rich with story and story, so story-driven. Um, 
you know, it, we had a 300-page script for this game. Wow. So it was a very dense game, and, and uh, you know, there's, it's, it's not all about action with that game, but there's so much story there, and uh, the people loved it for that. I think people forgave the fact that it was a short game. You know, we even dropped a multiplayer, and originally we were supposed to have multiplayer. We oh, dropped really? that. Um, and, you know, what's interesting about this game, too, is that we didn't have bullet time. That was not one of our original ideas. Really? Yeah, that came along later. And the, and the quick story there is that um, I was visiting Remedy on one of my trips over there. They're, you know, they're based yeah, in uh, Finland. Finland. And I was over there, and they were showing me this new cool idea they had to where when you shot an enemy, it would switch to slow motion, and you would see the enemy die in slow motion, John Woo style. Right. And I was like... And I was like, I was like, guys, that is cool, but we need to find a way to make that gameplay, yeah. not just a showy effect. Right. Let's find a, you know, let's make our character do that. He needs to be able to activate this mode and make that part of gameplay. And so they went to work on that, and then a month later we had it. Wow. Uh, humor me with a curiosity, real quick, too, because I remember I played these both of these games on PC as they came out. I was just heavy into PC gaming, but. Um, I'd started work at Official Xbox Magazine as, uh, I think, Max Payne 1 had already come out on the console port, and then 2 came along. And I was actually pleasantly surprised with how well they played on a gamepad, despite the very, you know, sort of precision thing to it. Did they do well on, uh, on consoles, or were, did, did really most of, the, most of the money get made on PC with these games? Uh, they did super well. I, I think that this game here, the first one... Um I think it was the second best-selling Xbox game that year. Wow. Um, and I, Might this, have been 02, if I remember right. Yeah, and because it came out... We actually delayed it because um, we had printed up you know, like a million boxes of this, and uh, we had, um, we had uh, the, the, two, uh, the two Twin Towers. They're oh, part of the game. Yeah. And we had that on the cover as a, like a background silhouette, mm-hmm. and we trashed all that and we went with a box that didn't have it on the cover yeah. so you know uh, we were trying to be sensitive to that whole thing there so right. yeah so 2002 was when that was really doing well and then when this came out it d- didn't do that well uh, quite as well but it still did really well too wow as a podcast network our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you but we also sell merch and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. So wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com realm, all lowercase. 
go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Um, all right, so of course Duke Nukem 3D, he is the, the character over your right shoulder there. We've got him on the screen behind you. When, I know you've, uh, you know, you've talked about Duke Nukem 3D a lot, obviously, uh, but I'm curious, when, when did you know that you had something special with Duke 3D? Was it early on? Is it not till towards the end? Are you surprised? Like, I, I'm sort of curious about that. Um, it's, it definitely comes together near the end. I mean, during the project, you know, great things are happening, but really in the final few months when, you know, all the stitching comes together and, you see, and, and the voice work gets done, um, and the personality really comes out, you know, uh, George, my partner, picked, you know, John St. John, which is like, turns out to be the perfect guy to do Yeah, I was going to, I'm going to ask you next where you found him, I'm curious. Right. So. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's in the last month is that you start to, you know, you feel the chills like, okay, we're on to something here. And I remember the night we uploaded the Shiver version. Yeah. And whenever, whenever, you know, we would release a new game, that night when we'd upload the Shiver version, that was always a great night. I remember like getting on to... Uh, CopyServe or somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, some of these online places, and I was so confident the game was going to be big. I remember having fun in these in these groups, like saying guys IRC and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, there was like you know, literally hundreds of people would be in these groups, you know, and I and they knew who I was and everything, and I'd be like, guys, I think we blew it. You know, I, I, <laughs> I was totally, you know, reverse, reverse psychology on the, I think, I think we blew it, guys, you know, thing, you know, things didn't work out, you know, we didn't get the character right and stuff, and people were starting to already get the game and play it, and they're like chipping their, are you crazy, this is great, you know, and, you know, so I couldn't, I couldn't pull their legs for too long because, you know, they started playing the game, but um, I, it, it was very obvious that we had a, a a major success. And where where did you find John St. John? I'm I'm curious because that obviously became a, a perfect fit. Well, I have to give all the credit to my partner George on that one. Um, he had a contact uh, at this voice agency, and what what his whole deal was, he had been playing a game called um, uh, the LucasArts game with the motorcycle, full throttle, full throttle, right? And he loved that voice, and he told the voice agency, "We need a we need that voice. We need a voice just like that." Yeah. And so they came up with uh, John St. John. And you know, a couple other people too, and and John St. John, you know, like you know, do that voice. George says, do that voice, and basically, John St. John did his version of that voice, <laughs> and um, hired him. That's so cool. I love that. Uh, who I know, you know, you were kind of off in Max Payne land, but did uh, do you remember like who who wrote most of those? 
iconic lines that, that we uh, all remember? Probably George, George? wrote uh, like 50% of them, and then just the rest of the team yeah. also doing, you know, their... their did, did you guys get any blowback at the time? for there Because I remember there was a, a big... The line that sort of caused a little stir was, uh, what are you waiting for, Christmas? And it was that dig, that because uh, that, Quake hadn't come out yet. Quake had been delayed. Uh, you know, if that line is a reference to Quake, I, uh, it's the first I've heard of that. Is it? Maybe, maybe it was just something I read on it. I, I mean, you may be right, because <laughs> we were all about doing digs, so that, that's pretty possible. <laughs> I mean, you know, like we had, you know, the Doom, that's one Doom Space Marine. Right, That was right. in there, and then... Uh, in Shadowware, we took a dig at Laura Croft and had her all tied up, tied up in chains and stuff. And um, I'd also at the time got onto our case, and, and you know, our lawyer wrote back and said, "You know, this is just a parody. Can't really do much." <laughs> so they backed off. Um, so yeah, we were we, we were all about doing you know fun digs. Yeah, um, it, was, it was clearly all in a fun spirit. It was oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing mean spirited. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So. Um, but, you know, we, we actually took heat, though, because some of our lines we basically took from... Uh, Movie, yeah, yeah uh, like Evil, uh, Evil Dead and right. Army of Darkness. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, our, our thinking was, you know, we love that movie. You know, let's, these, these are great lines. We're just going to pay homage to it. You know, it was, it was never like, oh, we're going to be sneaky and sneak this line in here and hopefully no one notices. <laughs> so it was more like, you know, we're, we're giving a salute to these movies, you know, and, and they work for Duke also, it turns out. So, you know, lines like Come Get Some and stuff like that, Hail to the King Baby, which also came from, oh, no, oh, no, uh, 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 I'm, I'm here to kick ass and chew, chew gum, gum yeah. a lot of gum. You know, that, <laughs> that came from They Live, another movie that we liked at the time. Uh, so, yeah, we, we fully admit that we stole these lines. <laughs> We're not trying to hide it, <laughs> but but you lived to the the lawyers did uh, did not have to uh, nah, pay, I mean, pay anybody. You, you, you know you can't you can't copyright you know dialogue right. So, <laughs> um, I'm curious what like so at this point you know you've got 3D realms. There's id. Uh, what what's what was the Texas game development scene like back then? Was it was it super friendly and fun, or was it was was there kind of a, like rivalries going on? You know, it was a fun rivalry. I mean, we, we were, um, you know, totally friends with the guys at ID, um, and uh, and but you know, at the same time though, we were you know we were competing, you know, and so we were always trying to one up what they were doing. Yeah, we, we never really could pull that off, at least in terms of engine tech. You know, John Carmack. They had a Carmack. They had a, they had a Carmack, <laughs> right? That's like you know they have a Hulk that kind yeah. of thing. Um, so we could never one up him. So our, you know, our whole deal was we're never going to beat Carmack at his own game, you know, which is designing the best engines on earth. So we need to do something else. You know, we need to we didn't make our games, you know, more give them more personality. Let's do some humor, you know, because they had a very strict sort of design philosophy of let's just stick to the, you know, to the to the metal, to the core gameplay. Let's just right. keep it simple and stay on track. You know, where we decided, let's throw in everything, including the kitchen sink. Let's give the character personality, humor. Let's add interactivity. Yes. Let's, let's add little slopes and other little tricks if we can. Um, so, you know, we, we, we played with all the edge stuff, you know, that they were leaving, you know, they, they didn't want to touch uh, because they, they saw it more as frivolous, really. So that's sort of where we sort of made our hay. That I mean, that's what I, honestly, that's what I remember most about Duke 3D is the interactivity that, yeah. that other shooters at that time were just not doing or not capable of doing. Yeah. That's what I love about it. Well, we had, we had to do something that they weren't doing to stand out. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, just by 
<clears throat> by how much did Duke Nukem 3D outsell uh, and and out revenue <laughs> everything you'd done before? Like, is it is it like life changing money at that point? Yeah. 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 Uh, we had several people retire, including um, Todd Repogel. Um, he stuck around and started working on Duke Four a little bit, but then he's like, "I'm tired of this," so he he retired. Um, you know, Ken Silverman, the, the guy who designed the build engine, he yes. did extremely well. Um, so, yeah, um, it was it was pretty big money. And um, but you know, our our whole our whole focus from George and I was. We, we, you know, we were never got, actually, well, my partner, I guess, you know, I never was a guy to want to buy Ferraris or all that, all that kind of stuff. My, par- my partner bought a, some cars like that. But, you know, my whole thing was this money just simply gives us freedom from having to listen to publishers and do what they want. Yep. This gives us the freedom to make what we want. And so that's how I, that's how I saw it. And also, we gave out super generous uh, bonuses to everyone. Um, our, our Christmas parties were kind of famous back in the day for, you know, giving people fat bonuses and all these gifts and, and stuff like that. So I was always super happy to share the wealth. And that's, that's what we did as a company. You were never tempted to just pack it in and go live on a beach somewhere? Never even occurred to me. Yeah. And to this day, it doesn't occur to me because this industry is just way too much fun. There's, there's it too is. much, you know, uh, it's too challenging. There's too much creative energy in it. So, yeah. Uh, so after Duke 3D, you mentioned that the, the, the uh, Duke Forever project starts, which I'll ask you about in a minute. But Prey was, uh, I don't know quite where that fell on the timeline. My memory is uh, maybe not quite serving Well, there's, well there's two there. stages to Prey. Um, the team that did Rise of the Triad, they began working on their next game, which was Prey. Okay. And um, this is when um, we had like a 1998... E3 demo that did super well. You know, PC gamers said it was like one of the games of the show. You know, we even had uh, a portal gun that uh, was kind of like the game portal to where the character could shoot and create a portal and then make another one and go through it and kind of do really crazy things. Very mind-blowing stuff back at the time. time. Yeah, it was just on. We'd never right. seen that. before. So we were really praise whole gimmick was going to be portals. Yes. Uh, and the thing is, is that we could never really get over the hump of, of getting the engine finished. We brought in some other engine people, uh, we, um, and it, it just never panned out. So we decided, let's just put all of our eggs into the Duke Nukem basket, Duke Nukem mm-hmm. Forever at the time, and we'll, we'll revisit Prey another day. <clears throat> so we, um, the, our publisher, GT Interactive, actually had put $900,000 into the game. We paid them back. We said, oh, wow. here, you, you guys can take this money back. We're putting this game on hold. And, you know, we don't want you to pressure us. Um, so that game kind of sat around. And then uh, Mike Wilson with uh, the Gathering Developers, mm-hmm. uh, and 3D Realms was part of that at the time, um, he said, you know, have you thought about bringing Prey back? And I, I yeah, I would love to. <laughs> and he said that uh, there's this team, Human Head, who, who could do it. And take two would from fund. Wisconsin from back yeah. in Madison, yeah, offshoot of uh, started by ex Raven people. Exactly, and so um, I was I was all all for it, and so we put together the deal, and I started working with Human Head, uh, and and me and and uh, their main guy were there, Chris, Chris Reinhardt. Reinhardt. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. you know we were working together daily on this. So I was so my two projects at this time were Max Payne and, and Prey for the most part. And my partner George was was Duke Duke Forever. Yeah. And so we started working on Prey and, and 
and you know had to have portals. So they they were using the uh, the Doom engine, the Doom Three tech at the That's time, right. I think, and they uh, they rigged it up to where it could have portals, and and uh, we developed a whole story and all this kind of stuff. And they came up with a lot of great ideas. Like some of the ideas they had were like this wall walking idea. Uh, and flipping gravity around, so you know they were they were being you know creatively you know involved you know and, and doing great things. So the, the one place where we dropped the ball though was that we didn't carry over the idea of the portal gun, and I wanted that in the game still, but um, it just it just didn't get in there because there was actually a lot of pressure from Take Two to get the game out early, and they actually for a while there for like six months. They actually were upset that we weren't listening to their producer, so they stopped funding the game. Wow. 3D Realms picked up the slack during that time to keep Human Head going, and because um, we were, you know, we were going to see it through no matter what. Yep. And then, and then when Take Two saw that, wow, this is really shaping up kind of sweetly, they they came back in and picked up the funding again, <clears throat> but they said, you know, it needs to be done by this date. <laughs> and so we had to make some changes and stuff, and the portal gun didn't make it in there. Hmm. And I'm to this day I'm like, well, I have to respectfully ask though, given that how come you didn't just tell them to f off again like you did the last time? Well, we we wanted them to fund <laughs> the, the project because we we had our own funding thing. You know, we were doing that right um, and Duke, Duke and uh, uh, you know we we just wanted we wanted to keep our our money for to make sure we could get Duke yeah. done, and so. Um, and we, and we still thought the game would do really well, and we thought, well, we'll get to the Portal Gun, the sequel. Right. But <laughs> before that happened, you know, the game Portal came out and <laughs> stole our thunder. So, um, yeah. So, I, the, what I, I remember uh, it being excellent, number one, for the prey that did ship. The I, I feel like the multiplayer was really didn't get the attention it deserved. It was like this MC Escher-esque thing. You're talking about like the wall walking and. You, you know, you'd be in a multiplayer match and someone would be like tiny and on the ceiling and it was all just weird perspective stuff. Right. That had to be really fun to play test and, and work on. You know, the play testing for that game, uh, our whole company loved all that because we really played with gravity in that game. And we had like these rooms that had huge spherical, uh, just, you know, huge spheres that, you know, it could take you a full minute to, to run around. But, you know, imagine running around the outside of a sphere. And then at some point you could jump and there'd be another sphere and you could jump to that. Yeah. So it really opened up a lot of creative possibilities for, you know, death matching, death matching and so on. And, um, yeah, but the game, just as a whole, I don't think that Take-Two was fully behind the game, to be honest. And because um, they didn't own the IP. And looking back, this was at a time when publishers we're really crossing the tipping point on, you know, if we don't own the IP, we're not going to put all of our eggs in this basket yeah. because we don't know what's going to happen next. And, uh, you know, if we would have sold the IP to them, which I would have probably been willing to do, you know, we'd already sold Max Payne to them at that point, mm-hmm. um, then I think they would have been way more behind it and I think would have got the proper marketing push. Well, even though I, uh, I don't want to jump too far, but I, I mean, we're on the subject. I'm curious, uh, Prey 2 was the game that never came out uh, pretty famously, and went through a lot of sort of public uh, stuff. But I remember I I was shown a vertical slice demo of it as part of a cover pitch back at OXM, and you were you were still involved at that point because that was it was Human Head coming. But and uh, it sort of famously had uh, very little seem, seemingly aesthetically to do with. The original Prey. I'm curious if you kind of speak to the the thought process behind that that original pitch for Prey 2. <clears throat> well, we figured that the original Prey didn't do as well as we hoped. 
So, uh, but we like the universe. Let's find a way to introduce new characters, a new sort of hero character. Yeah. So, uh, in the original Prey, there's this pretty famous scene of this uh, airliner suddenly being warped into this huge mothership and crashing, and and uh, you, you get to witness it. It's a really cool scene in the yeah. game. Anyway, the deal is is that with Prey 2, um, there's a bounty hunter... Uh, and, and a prisoner or something on that plane, and those characters become the lead characters in Prey 2. Uh, Tommy has a cameo in Prey 2, uh, so, so you realize, so just to maintain the fact that it's still in the same universe right. and everything, but it's more about this bounty hunter and, and, and his story. Um, and so, yeah, we were gonna we were gonna make Prey Two and, and and be in the same universe, but kind of a different story, almost like a bit of a Marvel thing. You know, you've got yes, Thor the, and the Iron Prey Man. cinematic universe. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even think about it really that way back then. But the idea was, you know, we'll we'll deviate a little bit here, and then later we'll we'll connect up connect up again because we felt like there was a lot more to Tommy's story that could be sold right. told. Um, so that that was the thinking there. Is it? Um, I mean, I'm sure you've had a number of many projects over the years that don't make it for whatever reason. It's just mostly the public doesn't hear about those. Is does Prey Two? Uh, is that one you you wish had had seen the finish line, or, or do you kind of just mentally kind of have to move on when that stuff happens? I mean, I, I do move on, but definitely I wish that game would have been finished. I mean, I, I think that uh, uh, I think it would have done really well. I think um, I think. It, uh, you know, it was, it was going to be published by Bethesda because you know Take Two had kind of disassociated themselves with it, so we right. took it to Bethesda. I think that they were going to be way more behind it, and um, I, I think it would have got the marketing it deserved, and I think it would have been a really big hit. But uh, there were some issues between with with Bethesda not liking some of the budgetary budgetary concerns with the game, and so they they ended up dropping support for the game yeah. and. Um, human head moved on. Uh, there's another project as well that, that sort of snuck in there that I, I remember uh, playing a bit, and then I'm curious what your memories are. Uh, Shadow Warrior, you, met, you touched on it a few minutes ago. Where did Shadow Warrior come from? <clears throat> well, back when we were doing um, Duke 3D, yeah. uh, this is, you know, we had met with Ken Silverman, who was another karmic level engine genius, and Karmic himself said, you know, Ken is the one guy who he really respects. So the, uh, we had a guy, we had our own Karmic, basically. And he had built this build engine that actually did a lot of things that the Doom engine couldn't do at the time. And so we thought, well, we've got this great engine. Let's not just do Duke 3D. Let's get some other teams to do some things. And so we gave the engine to uh, some people to work on with Shadow Warrior. And uh, we gave the team... Um, there was another team that I found that was based in California, and they began working on a game called Blood. And then there was another team that approached us, um, and they wanted to, to do a game called Ruins, uh, which later was released as a game called Power Slave. Hmm. Uh, I can't remember the name of that team, but um, but Blood, we ended up selling the rights before it was released Monolith. to Monolith. Yeah. Uh, I forgot who ended up getting the rights to Power Slave. And we, we kept the rights to Duke 3D and to, and to Shadow Warrior. And so, yeah, we released Duke 3D, and then a uh, year and a half later, we released Shadow Warrior. And uh, so it's just sort of, it was basically, it was a project born out of wanting to sort of get, <laughs> get as much out of, the, out, of, out of build as possible? Right, and other, other we licensed that engine, yeah. I think, uh, over 10 times to other 
companies on their projects. You know, there was games like William Shatner's uh, Tech War, and another company did one called Witch Haven. And there, there was a lot of build engine games that came out back then that we really didn't have anything to do with other than just licensing the engine. You know, for its time, it was the most licensed engine. Right. Uh, but the thing is, is that by the time Shadowware came out, it had kind of grown long in the tooth. You had Unreal, you had Quake. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, this... this Full 3D rather than 2.5D of the build engine. Exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, Shadowware didn't really make the big splash, and uh, so we never came up with the Shadowware 2. Although, a couple years later, Devolver recently. I right. was going to ask you if you if you played the the more modern version. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. We, they did a really great job. It turned out really well. I loved, I loved it. I yeah. loved it. Um, yeah, exactly. We did a deal with Mike Wilson for them to to take the franchise and, and to run with it. And uh, yeah, so they've done two new Shadowware games. So all right, Duke Nukem Forever. Uh, I remember being completely floored by the reveal, <laughs> which I believe at that point was the Quake Two engine, and it was this Vegas. Demo with all just all these cool scenes in it. Um, did you know then? I, I'm always curious what the sort of lead the buildup is. Did you know you were gonna like just blow up, blow the doors off the place, <laughs> um, or is it more of a nervousness, <laughs> uncertainty? Never really get that nervous about it because uh, you know Duke was was still on top of the world at the time and. Um, we, we, we felt like we had kind of carved out our own space with our style of 3D games, you know, where it was way more sort of over-the-top, crazy, can't be fun, all, right. all this kind of stuff. And that demo was clearly like that. And, um, but still, the fact that the reaction was as good as it was was amazing. We actually even got a better reaction, uh, I think, the next E3 or two E3s later when we had our Unreal Engine version. Um, I think that was 2001. Um, that was that was even a better reaction, um, but yeah, then it, then it basically went into vaporware hell. So yeah, I was going to ask you. I mean, did, when you when you switch engines the, for the, for the first time from Quake Two to Unreal, I mean that that's a that's a big deal from a technological perspective. Uh, did it did it feel like a big deal at that point, or it's just like, well, this is what the project needs. We're doing it, and it didn't. Well, uh, you know. Tim Sweeney and Jay Wilbur and Mark Rain all came down and gave us a great presentation and, and said, yeah, it's only going to take you a couple months to switch over, no big deal. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, we, we, we did it. And, um, and George was uh, you know, thinking, yeah, this game's going to give us a lot better features, a lot better tools. We'll be able to make a better game. Um, so, you know, it, at the time, it seemed to make sense. Uh, at what point did you start to worry that, that the finish line was was not approaching? Uh, in my in my uh, for me around two thousand and three, um, and I remember having conversations with George, you know about you know I just don't think we are we are a big enough company to pull this off, um, and I even made suggestions about you know what about what about handing this over to for instance Digital Extremes. And I talked to uh, yeah. James Schmaltz over there, and he loved the idea. And uh, uh, Christoph Hartman at, at, uh, at Take Two, he loved the idea. I just couldn't get George to buy in on the idea. Because <clears throat> I just felt like we were not, uh, you know, my argument to George was we need to, we need to almost like immediately double the size of our studio to get this thing out because we keep, what happens is, is that, you know, a, a new game will come out 
that blows the doors off of what we're doing, like Half-Life or Half-Life right. 2. And therefore, we, okay, let's go back to the drawing board and, and add more features to the engine. And, and we're just always playing catch-up because our team's too small to ever really, really kind of get ahead and yeah. maintain the kind of lead we want. So, um, you know, near the end there, we actually did finally embrace the idea of bringing in other producers and a lot more people, but it was just too late. Um, and Take-Two had lost their patience with us, and, and, and they didn't want to keep funding any, anything else. So, uh, But yeah, but definitely three or four years before that, I saw the writing on the wall. Did, did you ever consider canceling it outright? No, I don't. It, was, it, was, it would have never been necessary to cancel it because Take-Two would have supported the idea of us giving the game to another developer. Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> I guess I think more or less just answered the question, but if you could go back in time, what would you have done differently? Well, I mean, I felt like I did all I could do, um, and uh, you know, when you have a partner, you you, know, you can't just make a, a single decision and right. force them to agree to it. So I don't I don't know what I could have done better. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so, did you play? Did you play through the the final game that ended up getting released, finished up by? Uh, you know, you're the X, uh, X3D Realms crew and, and Randy Pitchford's team? No. 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 But I did play through the version before we handed it off, off to them. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I was very up on what was going on. And then when I had Randy come down, I knew we had a strong pitch, and, and he, he really liked it, too. Uh, but when they took it over, uh, it, I was basically kind of divorced of it at that point. Right. What, they didn't want my involvement in any way, and so... I stayed. I mean, out I know there was a there was a little bit of a legal dispute <clears throat> there for a little while. Um, it would take two. Uh, wasn't it with you guys specifically? Oh, uh, that came way later. Later, but, okay. But yeah, take two did sue us. But honestly, I don't know what they were suing us about because we never took any money from them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think I, I I don't know what that was going to be about. But it, it but I saw it as finally. Because it did scare George. I saw it finally as a way to um, hand this off to another another developer. Yeah. And since Randy, they were in the same, you know, Gearbox was in the same town. Right. He Randy got his start at 3D Realms. Started us, you know, good friends, good relationship. So this is this this is almost like a, a silver lining. This is like you know making you know lemonade from a lemon. <laughs> so let's you know I was like yes let's let's give this to to Gearbox and let them finish the game because frankly I don't want anything to do with it anymore. And so that's how it all came together. So n- not even curious to play it? You were just sort of psychologically just, just done? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I guess after that long, I can, I can understand and respect that for sure. Do yeah. You, do you read reviews at all, or do you just try to? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, read, I read a lot of the reviews. I mean, you know, they were mostly you know, medium kind of reviews. Yeah. There was a lot of you know, really bad reviews, very few really good reviews. Um, I actually, I was actually expecting, uh, to be quite honest, Gearbox to put more effort into the base game mm-hmm. um, to really help the small team called Triptych, who yes. were ex, some X three D ROM guys, yeah, uh, who were who eight were, of them or so, as I recall, right? right? Uh, yeah. They were basically taking this all upon themselves, and and when the deal was done with Gearbox, I was expecting Gearbox to add like 10 or 20 people in the short term to really kind of beef up the development sure. muscle and, you know, and fix up a lot of the issues that were still in the game. I mean, even though it was an impressive demo at the time, there were still issues with it. 
But my understanding was that that never really happened. Gearbox, what they did was they, they helped with the port. You know, they brought in a port team. Consoles, But yeah. they basically let Triptych kind of finish up the PC version. And once again, I felt like that was an undermanned team. You know, I, I give Triptych all the credit in the world for what they did. They, they performed, in my opinion, a miracle. <laughs> a miracle to stitching together what, what was done to create what they did. But they needed more help yeah. for the base game. I mean, I, I didn't review it for, for OXM, but I, I did play through the game because I, I think at, at, I'm glad it's out there because I feel like it's, it's like living history that, yeah. that's, that the public you know, got to play, this, this odyssey of a project. No, very true. That, that uh, like, it's there. You can, you can walk through it, and, it's, and it exists. And I, I appreciate that, it's, that it was finally released if, for no other reason than that. Yeah. Um, would you, would you want to see, you know, Randy owns it now. Gearbox owns it. Do you, would you want to see uh, Duke come back and see him start up a, a new Duke project at some point? Well, yeah. Uh, I definitely want to see more Duke games. Um, and uh, but you know, based on like some of the uh, uh, some of the lines like I've heard like like that are like Duke and Bulletstorm, um, I, I don't really think they have the exact right picture of Duke's personality. I think they kind of missed the boat a little bit. Um, so I'm hoping that if they ever do bring back Duke that they at least get George involved for that reason because yeah. George knows the personality inside and out. And um, so they, they, I think they need that help. Do you have any ideas that you've been sitting on for a Duke game? Well, you wanna- I, I, I had the next <laughs> one already planned out. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> the way Duke 4 was going to end, um, Duke was going to die. <laughs> and uh, it was going to be like this very kind of a tearful thing and, and his, com- his commander, General Graves, whatever... Uh, was going to be there and stuff, and um, uh, you know we were originally going to have bombshell in the game, um, and anyway, so we were going to have this really kind of uh, downer. I don't want to say downer, but you know he saves the day, but he dies doing it. Yeah, uh, a little bit like I guess maybe Superman movie, whatever you know. We're Superman, but obviously he was going to come back, and so Duke Nukem Five, which was going to be called Duke Nukem Vengeance. Yeah. V for five. Nice. We always play around with that kind yep. of thing, you know. Duke Nukem Forever. That you know, we yeah. we're goofy like that. <laughs> um, so the game had a name, Duke Nukem Vengeance, and uh, it was going to start off being a bombshell game, and then uh, somehow we were going to bring Duke Nukem back, like like a third into it somehow, you know, like a reverse Raiden in Metal Gear or or Arbiter in Halo Two, but the <laughs> but the opposite. I like that. Yeah, yeah, that would have been cool. Um, so. 3D Realms has certainly has continued. It has lived on. Uh, we got a bombshell game. Uh, Iron, Ma- uh, Iron Maiden is is uh, in the works now. You've got some other things in the works. Uh, you, you seem to be uh, the projects now seem to sort of be lovingly embracing that what is unfortunately now retro '90s style to it. Um, how how are how do you like game development now compared to? You know, compared to back then. You know, it's uh, you know, you you learn and uh, hopefully you keep getting better at your craft. And I think that you know, Iron Maiden is an example. You know, people who have are playing Iron Maiden, which is a which is based off our build engine from the nineties. Yeah, it's it's kind of an updated version of the engine. It it has some cool new features like colored lighting, way bigger maps. 
seamless level transitions, some stuff that the original build we couldn't do. Sure. Um, so it's very modernized build, but it still has that very fast place, fast paced, wide open, almost anything goes gameplay. Um, and uh, and because the people who are involved with making this game have been around for a long time now, and a lot of us were around back when the original build games were being built, you know, we've learned a lot. And so I think that's one of the reasons that this game is getting so highly reviewed is because we are really masters at, at, at build now. And I think we also live in an age to where you know, people aren't as jaded with graphics anymore. Back in the 90s, it was always a graphic race. True. You know, it was like who, who had the best engine won. You know, it was all about the engine and stuff. But we've kind of least reached a point of diminishing returns and all that. And now you have games like Minecraft and so many other games where graphics is, is really not the, the selling point. Um, it's more of a style. It's a chosen style. So, so people who are playing on Maiden now, made in this build engine, see it as a chosen style. And um, you know, they don't ding the game for not looking you know, as good as a Call of Duty or whatever. Right. <clears throat> and it's just all about the fun factor. And in that respect, you know, I think we've, we've hit it out of the park with this game. And we're doing a couple other retro games we haven't announced. And I think we're going to have sort of similar results because, you know, it's, you know, we're not having to worry as we make these games about, you know, doing better things with the engine and, and, and wowing things. We focus basically 100% on gameplay. And that's where it's at. So, sounds like no, no uh, interest or need to, for you to go back into AAA game development as it's, as it's traditionally known. It's, it's uh, ex- expensive and risky and you can just focus on gameplay now. Yeah, I don't. I don't see us ever trying to do you know a ten million dollar plus game in the future. Um, I mean, there's some projects going on that are multi million, but um, nothing that's going to compete with you know the the big boys, the, right? You know, the quadruple A type of games, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. What's uh, so? What, what's the future look like for you and for 3D Realms? It's you know, 2018. Uh, you guys have been around for what 20? Almost well, 30, 30 years. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a that's a heck of a run. And uh, what's so? What's next? Um, I, I don't really see uh, anything, you know, that's going to take us off the current train track. You know, we're just going to keep uh, moving forward. You know, we, we 3D Realms, uh, we're kind of getting the game plan going forward here pretty soon is, and we're kind of doing it already. We're kind of looking for external small teams. You know, we're going to try and find, you know, more ids, more remedies, you know, more little teams that uh, with the right design help, with the right marketing, with the right guidance can one day be another you know what remedy and it have become. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of um, a lot of golden nuggets to be found out there in sort of like the indie world, and we would love to be. You know, Devolver's done a little bit of this, True. and you know, we would we would love to be a, a studio that kind of goes back to our roots of helping some of these indie studios, you know, get to where they want to be. Excellent, love it, Scott. Thank you so much for coming by. Ion Maiden, check it out. Uh, Uses the build engine. I've played it. It's fun. I, you guys came by a few months ago. I had a great time with it. Uh, Scott Miller, the co-founder, CEO of 3D Realms. For much more from the best, brightest, most interesting minds in the games industry, be sure to check back every month for episodes of IGN Unfiltered. You can watch it on IGN, on IGN's YouTube, or listen to it on your favorite podcast service as well. Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? 
That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L.